Hi, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to this this particular edition, I should say, of the Rerooted Podcast. It is officially fall now, and uh, here in New York City, we are beginning to feel the changes of the seasons, which we know is inevitable. Um, our mindfulness teachings tell us that nothing is perfect, personal, or permanent, and this would be part of the impermanence um, foundational piece of things. And with it, of course, is not only letting go of our summer days, but our welcoming in of um, sort of what can be a fallow time so that there can be regeneration and, and growth moving forward. Part of uh, what's so beautiful about my guest today, Dr. Natasha Stovall, is that she has gone through, as we often do, um, inevitably, uh, very in very deliberate uh, and intentional changes and shifts, and is trying to, I think, in her own way, um, invite people to begin to awaken to some of the issues that sometimes we do have, um, as the Buddha talks about a little bit uh, of blind spots around, or maybe a lot. Um, she is a adult and clinical child psychologist with a wide range of experiences helping people work through life's difficulties, prioritizing humor, warmth, and empathy in sessions while drawing from psychodynamic, mindfulness, existential and cognitive behavioral and dialectical behavioral therapy techniques, working with things like anxiety, depression, transitions in life, relationships, and more. And the reason why I found this amazing woman today is because I read an article that she wrote called, which you cannot probably see very well here, Whiteness on the Couch. Whiteness, W-H-I-T-E-N-E-S-S -S, on the couch, presumably the therapy couch in this instance. And you can find it on Medium, uh, which is a website, M-E-D-I-U-M.com, like small, medium, and large. And she writes in it about the spectrum of white people problems and why we never talk about them in therapy. And I am thrilled uh, to welcome Dr. Uh, Stovall here today on Rerooted. Hi, Natasha. Thank Hi, thank you so much, Francesca. Really quick, I just wanna mention that the article's on long reads. Oh, I apologize. Medium would have been great too. It's on long reads. Okay, so it is on longreads.com, that's right. And mm -hmm. then it is called Whiteness on the Couch. I might've found it through mm -hmm. some connection on Medium, however. <laughs> so it's on long reads, Whiteness on the Couch. And this was just published within the last couple of months, uh, August, mm -hmm. 2019, last month. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for that clarification on long reads. So let's just jump in right to it. Um, you mentioned that you yourself, as I was, uh, were a journalist before you became a psychologist. And mm -hmm. um, then something must have uh, awakened in you either through that lens because you had been exposed to the world or as a, as a therapist um, to kind of want to interrogate this idea of whiteness um, to write this kind of an article, which is very extensive. Um, so maybe just talk a little bit about how your path uh, emerged from one career field to the other and how they're related. And uh, then we can get into the work of the, uh, the article content. Well, so it's, I feel like it's a long story in the way that a lot of times these things are, especially for, you know, white people or maybe everyone around race, because it's so much of what we live within every day. And sometimes it's almost counterintuitive to pull back and try to fully understand that. And I think especially for people who are white, you know, we're, it's very much part of how we're socialized to not think about being white or, or kind of not to not really interrogate it or not really dig into it, but to simply try to survive it and continue to, to live it out. Um, 
and so for me, it was because of the way that I grew up, which was in a, um, a city in a very multiracial environment, it never was quite as unconscious as I think many people experience it as. But as I grew up and became more of a member of like the larger white American world, it was something that became more unconscious. But I had a grounding in the idea that I was white and that there was a larger American and also global struggle for racial equality and justice. So I was grounded in that. So then in journalism, my original experiences in journalism were in a very left and sort of racially aware context. I worked at the Village Voice in New York City. And so that was a place where there were many writers of color, many writers in general who were very interested in racial, the racial justice struggles. And then later I worked at Vanity Fair where that very much was not on the table explicitly, but I was definitely exposed, continued to be exposed to a lot of investigative journalism often that would touch on race. So this was something that was sort of always there for me. However, when I went into psychology, I didn't sort of explicitly go into psychology to study racial justice or even what's called sort of multiculturalism within psychology. I was really much more interested in learning how to be a therapist to help people with their problems. So when you train in psychology, often what you do is go to work in hospitals. And when you work in an urban area, if it's a multiracial area, often your patients are people of color. And often many of them have trauma that is either directly or indirectly related to being people of color. So I was very much immersed, again, in a situation where race was very in my face, racial inequity was in my face. And to some extent, it was addressed in my training as a psychologist in the sense that I was encouraged to kind of be aware that, you know, what we consider sort of a more generic American experience, which is sort of a generic white middle class experience is not the norm for everyone. But it was very much focused on the experiences of people of color as being outside the norm, you know, or especially these people of color who are often poor, came from very traumatized backgrounds, um, very under-resourced in terms of their own families, but also uh, in terms of the institutions that they were part of. So like all of that's to say that like it never, it would only rarely come back to being white, like that there was anything meaningful about being white, except that it was not the norm for everybody. And so when I got into private practice eventually, when I finished my training and I started working almost exclusively with white people or mostly with white people and also only with other white clinicians for the most part, I suddenly began to think about sort of like that I was working with a very specific population and a different population, which sort of popped out because it was so different from the population that I was used to working with. And on top of that, it was around 2015. So suddenly whiteness seemed to be a really big topic. And I mean, I think it had been a topic throughout Barack Obama's presidency, but I think the sort of bizarre behavior that was sort of coming out in white people, not just in conservatives, but 
sort of in general among, you know, liberals, conservatives, progressives, sort of every stripe, it really struck me. And I think because I was now, a, uh, you know, a practicing therapist, my instinct was sort of to look at it psychologically. And that was the beginning of this. And then I sort of began to look at like, well, is there any guidelines or is there, where is there guidance for sort of understanding whiteness or white people as a social group, the way that we understand the psychology of other social groups. And that's where I discovered there really wasn't any. Yeah. And that was the beginning. I, I love that. Do you have more there or is that okay to pause right there for now? Well, we can pause there. I definitely can keep going, you know. Well, I, I, what I wanted to call attention to was um, this idea of whiteness as a racial construct that has just gone unexamined uh, largely. And, um, you know, I had done a podcast with uh, Ruth King, who is a Dharma teacher, um, also does a lot of diversity training, um, a woman of color who is, um, you know, in her book called Mindful of Race, which I believe was published last year, which you can find anywhere, really encourages folks of any racial group to meet with what they call racial affinity groups to kind of do what you might call like a book club, so to speak, like just meet once a month and talk about it. Um, What it means to be, in my case, for example, multi-ethnic with other people who are Mm multi-ethnic or multi-racial, what it would mean if you were a person of color to have solidarity around um, being in in a space with other people of color um, that may feel supportive. That could be, you know, it could be a Bangladeshi group, as it could be an African American group, it could be a Caribbean mm-hmm. group, or you know, you know, it doesn't have to be like whatever. And then much the same way that those are a little bit more what we tend to see out there. That we need to also have those for white mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. and really underscoring that that's the foundational piece of what is whiteness. Mm-hmm. We know race is a construct anyway, but what is whiteness really made out of and how do we relate to it and what does it mean for me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that really fascinated me when I started this research was that there are, like, as you mentioned, many people who have talked about whiteness as a social construct, a racial construct, a psychological construct, but very rarely in psychology and almost never among psychotherapists. Yes. And that's very noticeable when you do the research, because of course there's a whole field of whiteness studies and within whiteness studies, which has really been going for a good 30 years almost now, you know, there are many people who have sort of either worked explicitly within that field or outside it, but kind of relevant to it, you know, in philosophy, in literature, in history, in sociology especially, in education especially, like even within research psychology, there's been some, but it really is easy to go all the way through your training as a psychologist, I think less so as a social worker, but I think in other psychotherapy modalities and never encounter it. You know, I mean, it took me years of research before, I mean, even today I will go and start researching some particular subject aspect of psychological of whiteness and psychology or a psychology of white people as a social group and come across someone who I've never heard of. Yeah. You know, no one's ever mentioned to me. Yeah. So there is a real hidden thread there, but it's, it, it, you really have to look and it's not part of the mainstream psychological discourse. Right. Right. Which would be the 
um, <laughs> to go back to my literature uh, studies when I was in college, you know, there's the canon and then there's the <laughs> marginalized voices. Yeah. There's whoever's yeah. on the inside of the circle to use the social work, you know, sort of degree, uh, you know, lens. And then there's mm-hmm. the marginalization on the outside or whatever, the periphery. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that the work that you're talking about is kind of twofold. So maybe we can get into that is one is, and I sort of told you my theory off camera before we started, but one is that um, as my indigenous focusing oriented therapy trainer and creator of the, of the, of the whole training, um, Shirley Turcott uh, talks about, uh, this is a complex trauma training. She says, I'd rather be the um, one who receives the incest or that receives the colonization than who is the incest or, or the colonizer, mm-hmm. because look at all of the pain that's there. This, mm-hmm. as painful as it is, is workable because mm-hmm. I, because I, it's showing up for me, and I'm mm-hmm. and I'm processing it, or I'm forced to kind of address this. The blindness of the folks who are kind of perpetuating something or inheriting of something that is uh, unoppressive, you know, um, extracting. Uh, violent, you know, force, uh, you know, that that's like, whoa, like, you know, where's the in on, on that? And, and mm-hmm. to that end, some of the work that you've talked about doing is one for um, folks who are, as you just said, uh, people who are light skin privileged or white skin privileged um, to be able to work with white clients mm-hmm. about the concept of, of their own social construct of, of whiteness um, and then, you know, there's the other piece of people just doing the work who are light skin privileged or white skin privileged to understand and learn history, to walk through mm-hmm. the white racial fragility or shame spiral or whatever it comes up and then come mm-hmm. out through resilience to the place of solidarity and interbeing and interconnection, which is mm-hmm. that nasty kind of like, oh, I don't want to do this because I speak for experience on this. And then when you kind of walk through and cross the river, you're just like, oh, we're all here together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So which one do you want to start with? You tell me. Well, I think I, I would like to start with the first in the, because I think that it really is the more urgent area because I think people who are sort of in the second camp, you know, I mean, again, we, we find ourselves in a binary, but that's just where, how we, but you know, we can think of it as a spectrum, right? With sure. on one end people who just almost are really clinging to the idea of colorblindness or just really feel like they don't know, like that, that they recognize, they may re- recognize that racial injustice is part of life in America, but it doesn't impact them on a daily basis. And to the extent that it does, they're able to really screen it out or kind of put it, compartmentalize it because it's, they have, because of their privilege, because of like the freedom that they have to do that. And also because they may be, depending on their class or depending on their life circumstances, they may be distracted by a whole bunch of other stressors, which makes racial injustice seem like not very experienced near to them, which is, you know, an old psychological term, and which refers to the degree to which people have um, awareness or kind of like willingness to kind of address a particular psychological conflict. If it feels very experienced near, it's going to be much more urgent. If it feels very distant, they're not going to, it's hard to put, it's put their attention on it. So, so for people who have awareness and willingness, even though I think that that group or that side of the end of the spectrum also needs tools and needs attention 
and that this work is important. You know, we need people to focus on that end of the work to kind of make that journey more explicit and also more effective because I think there are a lot of people working on how do you get kind of white, you know, to use like the colloquialism, like how do you get white people who want to be woke, actually woke to the point that they're actually going to be effective in, in kind of disrupting and resisting the kind of replication of these very unjust systems and institutions that are continuing to kind of like reify racial injustice, class injustice, all of these isms that we live with as part of our society. You know, like that work needs to be done because there are many people who are working on it. We have no idea what actually works. And that's what psychology is so good at. We are supposed to have these ways, these evidence-based ways of, of kind of helping people create behavior change and attitude change. So I think that work definitely needs to be done. And I think we need clinicians and, and, you know, all people who are interested in kind of like social justice and, um, you know, using therapy to be helpful in that area. I'm sort of trying to find the language here to work on that. So part of my article is sort of a call to action, like, let's get going. Yeah. You know, like, I don't, have, I, love. The I don't have the answers. So like, let's work on this together. But the part about how do you sort of get at people who really are, for the most part, successful at compartmentalizing racial injustice, even though it continues to affect them psychologically and affect many other people much more in a much more kind of immediate and dire way. That to me is more interesting. And what you said about Shirley Turcott, is that her name? Mm -hmm. That's, I think, really key because it, it has to do with how, for her, there is a difference between the perpetrator and the person who's perpetrated against. And she can very clearly identify herself as the person who was perpetrated against. There's nothing that she sees of herself in the perpetrator. And even though being someone who's perpetrated against is very, there's so much agony and pain and kind of um, self you know, sort of a destruction of self, what a psychologist, I think it was a psychologist a long time ago called soul murder. Yeah. You know, there's so many, there's so much, you know, kind of violence in that. She is identifying that there's also a tremendous and maybe almost in some ways worse violence in being a perpetrator Yeah. and having that be inside of you, having that be part of who you are, having that be who you are. And one thing that I think is really useful is to think about all of the psychological theories and kind of, you know, concepts that already exist that are considered part of, you know, the psychological canon as manifestations of whatever it is we're going to call whiteness, you know, of this. And so I'm thinking immediately of concepts like identification with the aggressor, Yeah. you know, Co <laughs> cognitive dissonance, you know, narcissism. Like these are ways that we sort of, in terms of how we create our identities, these are how we consolidate our identities around power and violence, even on very mundane day-to-day -day 
levels. I'm only laughing because I recently had that kind of an experience with someone who is a psychoanalyst and, and, and also mm-hmm. a, a teacher. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was just so evident. And it was just mm-hmm. so interesting because, as you say, it's, it's sort of cooked into the, to the, to the cake there. It's very cooked into the cake. I think the, and sometimes I do wonder if it's possible to use something that's so Western identified and so much of a part of, you know, these sort of colonial Christian, although not really that Christian, but, and maybe that's part of what can be kind of hopeful around psychology and sort of our background as the psycho, you know, coming from psychoanalysis, as it really was something that was created by people who were outsiders from the Christian colonial system, right? So even though Freud didn't really talk about being Jewish very much, and there's some interesting work that's been done about that, you know, about how he really did bake in a sort of racial analysis without really being explicit about it. Um, you know, so I, but I think there is hope that we can kind of use these tools, which were created by people who were in many ways, fundamentally outsiders, you know, turn of the century Jews living in Europe, um, in a moment, you know, kind of not unlike our own, um, you know, like that there is hope that this, these systems can be used to kind of undo some of the, the older, you know, kind of. Christian, very hierarchical, very, um, you know, even pre-capitalist, capitalist ways of thinking about ourselves yeah. as, as parts of a system that is, that either you're on top or you're below. Right. And the important thing is to identify yourself, to organize yourself psychologically as someone who is above and not below. And what I find so interesting about that is that the core piece of, you know, um, one of the women who, I forget her name, she's the founder of one of the co-founders of Omega. She calls it, we're all bozos on the bus. I don't, you know, that would be based mm-hmm. on the whole, that we're right. all the same, right? So how can we all be the same and then not be stuck in a place of not good enough because what is good enough? And that kind of goes back into the spiritual piece around like, well, we all have this, you know, sort of inner basic inherent dignity and worth. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes that gets occluded by our conditioning, our early life experiences, our inheritance or whatever it is, but that Mm -hmm. it's kind of more about when we talk about mindfulness and we talk about the whole practice, it's about remembering. And if you listen to Dan Siegel, the neuroscientist and, you know, child psychiatrist and stuff, we'll Mm -hmm. talk about integration. And so Mm -hmm. we're sort of personally integrating and then we're sort of spreading our reach out further from the corpus callosum piece to the collective Uh social integration. But that that really takes sort of like this tiered space, I feel, of of rooting, rerooting, that's part of the reason mm-hmm. why this podcast is called that, into our own basic dignity and worth to then be able to expand out to hold the fact that these other things also, you know, exist. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think like all of that work is incredibly hopeful to me. And I think that what I find, what, one of the reason that I think Buddhism and, you know, all of these religious practices that either come from outside Christianity or, or outside of Western religions or have always existed within Western religions but have been suppressed yeah. is like, you know, the kind of counter organization, which is like, we are all one, like we are all part of a greater whole. Like that is a much different way of organizing yourself 
psychologically and operating psychologically, you know, in your relationship with yourself, but in your relationship to others as well. Um, and so there's a lot there. And, and we're also our unique, individual, bizarre social security number conditioning, which could be about these very realities that are different. Right. And so I think that the, the thing that I also find very interesting and useful coming from a sort of psychological and a specifically psychodynamic and somewhat psychoanalytic perspective is that there's always resistance. Like there's always an internal resistance to, you know, things that might be more, or it's not that there's always a resistance, but that you need to try to understand resistance if you see evidence of it. So for example, within institutions like a psychoanalytic institute or, you know, a place like Omega, which I'm not trying to single them out because I think they do try very hard to kind of work on the issue of diversity. But when you look at these places where overtly the conscious, the conscious message and the conscious identity is of a place where we believe in equality, we believe in diversity, we're open to all, we, this is a meritocracy, all of these kind of ideas, which are then really unconsciously subverted. And the only reason you only know that is because it's somehow impossible for people of color to really fully be integrated and welcomed and more than just welcome, but to like actually be incorporated. Their, subje their subjectivity is not incorporated. There is no true yeah. integration. And so even, and I think that's the thing, that's where we're at now is the realization that like, it can't just be a conscious decision to not be racist or not be, to, to believe in integration because there's some kind of resistance there within white people or white socialized people or European descended people against true integration of the other. And without some kind of mechanism or tool or, or framework, psychological intellectual framework for, a, for moving against that resistance, we could continue to have very brutal systems of scapegoating and oppression, you know, we just have racism without racists. Yeah. You know, and that, that's what I'm really interested in because I think like I've existed in these contexts for decades now, surrounded by people who really are not interested in being racist and look down on other racist white people and yet self-segregate without really even realizing why. Right, right. I love this observation and calling it out and naming it right here um, because I think that that's kind of the heart of it all is mm -hmm. the, um, and you used the term colorblindness before. And um, for those who may not be familiar with what that means, I'll just sort of say my understanding of it is more like, oh, well, I have black friends or I have people of color who are friends or I have people from different countries that are friends or whatever, or I don't see race. I, race doesn't matter. We're all the same. Of course, we're all human. And that that negates the individuality and the uniqueness of each and every person who wants to be mm -hmm. considered as a full person, which in their experience of life incorporates the full humanity mm -hmm. of who they are, which is that they may be black or gay or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and that they can show up in their fullness and that you can meet them there without preconceived mm -hmm. notions about how they would then be just like the other black person or the other gay person or whatever mm -hmm. it is that you may have that mm -hmm. you... 
um, sort of postulate as, you know, being, you know, open to and equal to in your mind. But then when it shows up, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit different from that sometimes. Right. And I mean, some of what I think white people in these kind of very liberal institutions grapple with is that the very presence of a person of color in that institution calls up all of the parts of their identity that they really don't want to have to feel the colonizer oppressor you know like it's one thing to feel yes. like i'm not a colonizer i'm not an oppressor in a white environment but as soon as a black person let alone a black person from a disadvantaged background walks into the situation you immediately are faced with all of the cognitive dissonance that you know kind of oh i am well more well off this from this person i went to a school where there wasn't violence i never have to have worry about the police like the whole backpack suddenly becomes active the backpack starts like squirming and it's like heavy all of a sudden you know and and i think that's part of the resistance that internally happens for white people but that people of color very much feel and people of different yes. classes i mean i i think that's it something is a lot class think about it is also. a lot class it is yeah i mean i think that that people of color who can kind of who are exposed through education and are able to kind of like almost unconsciously like quell the anxiety of uh, white people in institutions it is easier because somehow like unconsciously they're doing this emotional labor to kind of like don't worry like i'm not going to make you too nervous but i think there's a lot of ways we don't understand that and again like i'm sort of pointing out all of these issues and i think as a as a therapist i'm constantly thinking about how these things all operate on a deep level mm. but what i'm kind of the message that i that i'm kind of trying to sort of put out there for other therapists is simply that like these are things that we can we can work on together like we can use our field and all of the 100 plus years of clinical wisdom and you know research and experiment you know studies that have been done to kind of begin to think about this problem in a different way yes. that could be more productive and yes more in some ways more exposing for us as as european descended people but it's also something that there is a real commonality right because even if you are if you're raised in the united states if you're exposed to the kind of united states family dynamic you're not going to not be familiar with what's going on. And I think the ad advantage, or I don't know if it's exactly an advantage, but I think the head start that people of color often have and often get frustrated with white people about is simply that this is something that they've been thinking about longer and they're not so defended against. Right. And it often seems like sometimes conversations break down because there's anxiety on the part of, of, of white people to say like, hey, I feel uncomfortable, like I, I wanna talk about these things, but I don't know how to talk about them. Can't you explain to me how to talk about them? And then, you know, people of color in a very, you know, to use a very broad brush are like, ugh, <laughs> I'm tired, yeah. I've already had this conversation like 10 times today. You know? Right, 10 times today, which is why it goes back to why is it so important for people with light skin or white skin privilege 
to do some of the work around understanding the basic history of genocide and enslaved people and colonization and um, social inequity and not just inequality, but inequity, meaning the barriers structurally and socially that have been put up to uh, favor certain uh, racialized groups and to marginalize others and exclude others. And that whole thing and how that works together, as opposed to the pull your step up by your bootstraps, meritocracy, head west, it's fine, right. work on yourself, Rendian kind of, you know, libertarian argument around, well, you can do it. Well, it's true, even in the mindfulness teachings, that virya or energy or effort is important for anyone usually mm -hmm. about you know practice if you want to be you know dominique Dawes, an amazing olympic gold medal gymnast if you want to be mm -hmm. you know um yeah, the best uh, the best quote unquote a very successful um you know clinician uh, in this field you're going to have to put in some effort right mm -hmm. but that it's different when you're looking at different groups in terms of what even was available to begin with on the buffet table. And when there's, you know, a potato versus, you know, old country buffet, you're obviously going to get a different outcome. <laughs> right. And you might get obese. Yeah. So that's like a different. <laughs> and that, but that's another manifestation of what we're talking about. Yes. Because yeah. then that's part of what contributes to some of what become issues within certain social racial populations around healthcare and around even constructs, if you were to extend it from direct health, like obesity or morbidity to beauty and to what's mm -hmm. acceptable in the Western beauty standards of like perhaps white, thin, blonde, if we're talking about women or, or something like that. But that's mm -hmm. a whole other piece of this that is important that we won't mm -hmm. probably have time to totally unpack. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to say a note on that, great. I want to also get back to this idea of not really saying that to, to this piece of, do I want to be the perpetrator or the one who is perpetrated on, that obviously there's tons of people here with light skin and white skin privileges who are not <laughs> genociders directly, but the inheritance of the privilege that that brings and then through the unexamined and unchecked ways in which they have been afforded a certain way of being that other people are completely cut off from that is only available to them through structural oppression is part of then what makes them a part of the group that continues to perpetuate trauma and genocide on others, even if it's unaware by them. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think that these are like, this is really, you're really getting to some of these like core mechanisms of how, you know, um, I'm trying to think of what a good word, I mean, oppression, I guess, is like a very sort of generic and but broad term for what you're talking about, but how that's reproduced without people necessarily identifying with being oppressors. In other words, without going out and saying like, this is what I want to do with my life. You know, not that there aren't people I think there are people who really identify with the aggressor on a conscious level, and that's part of their identity. And that's a group that I think is probably- Occupying Washington. One of the, <laughs> right, and one of the hardest to reach. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a whole range of kind of ways that people identify with the aggressor less consciously and less, um, less directly which allows them to do things like gentrify a neighborhood. Right. And I would add to that that from a neuroscientific standpoint, I would think about 
Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory and the ways in which we all feel safe and that one wants to be in environments where their particular organism feels safe and doing a lot of this unpacking the invisible backpack of white privilege or light skin privilege can make you feel temporarily unsafe, right? Just like the gentrification pieces is that we're going to go in here. We have a, we have a right to be here because that's sort of Mm -hmm. the whole thing about genocide. Mm -hmm. Like we're coming in, this is your land and we're taking it. Right. That's just baked into some of what we have become familiar with. Right. It is. And yet I will say as someone who's lived in gentrified neighborhoods, and again, I go back to this Shirley Turkoff idea, right? Like if you're, how low must your baseline for kind of emotional or kind of interpersonal safety be that going into a neighborhood where you can feel not just intellectually know, but feel from the people who live there hostility, discomfort, how little do you kind of value or expect a level of safety that the only way that you can feel like you can, like that this is acceptable to you, you know, like that you would want to live in a neighborhood um, where you know that you are pushing people out and you can feel that. And yet you're going to go about your day you know, or your life tolerating it. And not doing the work around what it means to be integrated, which I think is actually, this is a conversation I was having last week with someone in the real estate development field about gentrification. I was saying, you know, what if some of the realtors or real estate agencies or whatever it is came together and did cultural responsiveness training for any of the people so that we could build a strong community so that there could be, as there has been at some times, whether or not you want to say Oak Park, Illinois, even though they have issues there, or places where there's right. a I mean, more, I, yes. where you're coming in with, a, with an offering with an invitation, if you are to mm-hmm. do such a thing, of awareness around this being a factor and you're naming it and you're saying, you know what, I want to learn and know and grow and become part of the fabric of this community in a way that may or may not be helpful to you, that that even would be more and helpful to me, right? Because I want to understand my sisters and my brothers because right. I don't, right? So like you may not want me here and I get it right? Mm-hmm. And, and I don't really know if I should be here, but I'll tell you what I can offer you about my awareness of what it's like to be here for not only right. me, but right. perhaps for you. And can we have a conversation about right. that? It's and that that's like the a- onus on the white person coming in, not on the yeah. person of color who's already been there. Right. It's like a carbon offset for, gener- for, for gentrification. Which you is know? what so- the indigenous people in the US did, right? And then we're mm-hmm. screwed because it was a lie. Well, and I think that that's sort of probably like maybe the, the, the kind of fly in the ointment is that even nice gentr- nicer gentrification is gentrification in yeah. the sense that people will be displaced. Like, and, but, any, but I think that is a larger discussion. But sort of what I was trying to get at was that, um, God, I kind of lost it, but, you know, that there is, there's something about kind of like, people who are willing and interested in kind of in, in, in understanding, I'm sorry, I totally lost. Well, no, you were basically saying that when you're white skin privileged or light skin privileged Mm -hmm. and you walk into a neighborhood that has people of color primarily there and you sense that it's like not really right to be there, right? You're there and then you're Mm -hmm. there anyway. How does Mm -hmm. that then play out that you just sort of push through and then- Right. 
Well, I was saying that there's a very low, I think if you think about the way that white people in a very broad sense are socialized, there is a pretty low priority on collectivism, right? We're very individualist. We're raised to be very individualistic. And so if that's the case, one thing that you are missing more of is a sense of collectivity. And it's interesting because there are big variations by class on this. But if you look at people who really have not just white privilege, but also class privilege, there is a lot of emphasis on individuality and individualism. So therefore, what's going to be lower as a psychological variable is your kind of um, interconnectedness, your interdependent interdependence with other people and your, the, the strength of your interpersonal relationships, right? Like community is not a, something that's really valued, a variable that, you know, rates very high if you talk to people who are socialized with white privilege and also class privilege. So if that's the case, maybe living in a neighborhood where people really, you know, your neighbors really don't like you that much as long as you have access to these things that, you've, that you're sort of socialized to value, like you know, nice stores or nice restaurants where you'll be welcomed and served, like you can live with that cognitive dissonance and you can exist within that cognitive dissonance, even though on a sort of more profound level, you may experience sort of high levels of emotional distress, but because you don't really know what to do with that, you're just going to continue on because this is really what you know. And so that's what I was, this is now I remember what I was trying to get to, which is that the idea that like one of the sort of states of the art in the conversation around how do you sort of wake up white people is like the more that people are aware of the history of oppression in the country and the more we can flesh out people's history, our history as a nation and sort of get through sort of the sort of layer of, of kind of mistruths and, and misdirection that is part of our educational system, the more we can kind of wake people up. And I think that's true, at least for some portion of the population, like that does work. But I think that the problem is it doesn't go the whole way, at least for right. some portion of people because, and it's very true also in therapy, we've had this realization over the last 50 years that insight is not always enough. Right. People have to have an emotional experience. And that's where I I think love that you're saying that. <laughs> no, I do because I do. I mean, because most of the trauma work is about subcortical synaptic transformation and that exactly. that's really using the limbic brain and not the prefrontal cortex and the whole idea of knowing something right. without actually feeling into it from the inside out more somatically or however you want to say it. There's a million ways you could say it, but basically that you feel it at a different level. Yeah. And I think it's something that's been, you can also see this in the history of like documentary work, like where there was an idea in the sixties and seventies that if people just knew and they could see what the U S was doing in all these different countries, people would reject it and they would reject an ideology and they would reject political leaders who wanted to sort of like take us to war or, or, you know, do atrocities like Milai or, you know, the things that went on in Central America, like if people just knew they wouldn't support politicians who allowed these things to happen. Well, it turned out that wasn't true. Americans have a very, like Jesse Jackson said, they have a high tolerance for black pain. You know, it's the insight is not always enough. People need to have an emotional experience. And I think that's part of what gets in the way, or that's what limits the effectiveness of um, 
exposing people or sort of like, um, it's not so much that it isn't useful to do historical work to kind of explain to people what the history is, because for at some portion of the population and probably people who have more of a secure attachment, who are less reactive, that works. But there is a portion of the population that becomes super defensive, their fight or flight gets triggered. It, it does something within their identity that really doesn't, that they have the opposite reaction and they become more defensive. And so again, we go back to this, again, I'm focusing on people that I guess are like sort of, I'm sort of othering people that I see as like more racist. And probably I should just keep focusing on other liberals like myself. But I think these questions are important because when we look at, at the effectiveness of things like diversity training, or we look at the effectiveness of the different things that people are coming up with and trying, and again, like why isn't psychology involved? Like we're supposed to be the experts here. Like we're letting every other lay person and other field do the work that we're supposed to be so good at. But we do need to evaluate effectiveness more because I think in some ways it's not good to be out there trying to do a certain kind of work and maybe making some people actually more reactive. Like that's a problem. Right. Well, like you anything, know? yeah. In the Buddhist teachings, they will say, you know, like there, there are stories and stuff around like, you know, the one person they said, you know, uh, well, you really should stop, stop smoking. And, and, you know, the other person, they would say, you really need to just go have a cigarette you know, like, uh, right. that they, or yeah. they'd be walking, like, you need to relax, right? Like, and, and like, you know, or the, the, the person will be walking down the street and about to fall into the ditch and he pulls them back here because they need to pull away from the right and the other person needs to pull away from the left. Mm, that right. these are, you know, that we're just unique. And so you have to, that we have to just understand that. Just like if you're talking about, mm -hmm. like you said, attachment, which is, you know, how secure a person feels and their ability to kind of affect and defect with other people. Like I can come into relation with you and out of relationship with you and still have my own inner ground of being right. and yeah. worth and not get like too caught up in, I need to protect myself all the time behind a wall or behind a boundary, mm -hmm. or I need to mm -hmm. cling, cling, cling and want more and more and more. And again, those are the basic mindfulness teachings of Mm -hmm. craving and aversion and then indifference, mm -hmm. which is kind of a softer form of, in some ways, aversion. Um, okay. So Sean Ginwright talked about, Ginwright, who I spoke with a couple months ago from his podcast uh, about something that I think you're really pointing to here, which is if the insight isn't enough, you have to kind of do the practice, right? So even if you mm -hmm. were to learn the thing, like even if you actually sort of went back and said, well, because I've heard people say this, and including Pat Ogden on her uh, therapist, uh, you know, interview with me to kind of say, like, I thought I was a liberal white woman who lived through the 60s and have people of color sort of in my family. But now I'm more aware of these other pieces that mm -hmm. I wasn't, as you say, woke to, so to speak. And now she's doing stuff about it, you know, which I think is really, mm -hmm. really beautiful. Um, and also like in her trainings um, in sensory motor psychotherapy with folks, I think is trying mm -hmm. to, to bring in that, that lens. But um, Jen Ray talked about, and he's an educator and he works with, you know, the sort of more urban, you know, youth populations in California. He was sort of talking about how he does his own personal practice. Like, I'm mm -hmm. going to make sure that I do my swim every morning or that I allow myself, he's a man of color, African-American, how am I going to show up for me today and care for mm -hmm. me knowing all of this so that I can then be available um, and that that's kind of part of, I think, what can help hold <laughs> the overwhelm that can happen when we start to try mm -hmm. to do this work on a sustainable basis. 
mm-hmm. that if you're mm-hmm. white skinned or light skinned privileged that you can bring in. And also then the self-compassion pieces like, Hey, I'm going to screw up. These are going to be messy conversations. They're not going to be fun and easy all the time. I'm not always going to be mm-hmm. perfect about it. Can I do the discomfort tolerance around this? Mm-hmm. Am I able to tolerate being uncomfortable and have that not be something I have to run away from or deny? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You Absolutely. Know? It's work. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think people, I think the, you brought up at the beginning, this idea of like perpetrators and people who are perpetrated against. And I think the identity of the perpetrator, I mean, I talk in my piece about Melanie Suchet, who's a, um, a psychoanalyst and she does some really poignant writing about what she calls racial, what she calls, yeah, racial melancholia, which is this, which she, which is something that was originally kind of formulated by these two writers, these two Asian American writers who created, who wrote a piece about Asian American assimilation and the sort of grief of everything that is lost in assimilation, everything that's given up and the kind of like, and also the, the kind of realization, the grief of the realization that you can never fully achieve whiteness. You know, you can never really achieve assimilation. You try, you give up things that are very important in terms of like a cultural heritage or a cultural attachment. And then you try to gain something different. And what you wind up gaining is very imperfect and kind of not what you originally wanted. So there's like so much grieving there. So she brings in the idea of grieving, which is very central to a lot of different therapeutic modalities. Uh, and of course, Americans are not, I guess that's not one of our strong suits is grieving. You know, we, we really love our manic defenses much more. And so the idea of grieving the identity of the perpetrator and the fact that without choosing it, we inherit an identity of a perpetrator that we then take on before we're even really old enough to realize what we're doing that we're socialized into that. And so there is an element of not being able to choose the identity and being stuck with it and then being, needing to kind of either, and, and to, to, to acclimate or adjust to it one way or the other. And so for people who sort of decide that they're not gonna hold on to the defense of like, I don't see color or I am better than other people or everyone's out to get me just because I'm white and you won't replace us and there's a white genocide. Like if you're not gonna do any of that or to be like, I am, I do, you know, like I don't know why we don't have any white, non-white professors. Like I just don't, you know, like if you're gonna like kind of let go of all of these defenses and kind of like sit with the grief of the situation you're in and the anger and whatever you're feeling, like that is not gonna feel good. And, but, but I think people need more support in order to kind of even conceptualize what it is that they're feeling. Because I think when you have a white identity, a white racial identity, which is slightly different than having the privilege, because I think the privilege itself is sort of a fact. The identity is more, it's more of an unconscious kind of organization in terms of how you think of yourself and how you think of other people. And it can be changed. You can't change the privilege. You can change how you use it. But you can't really change the fact that it exists, but you definitely can do a lot to change how you think of yourself and how you position yourself. But there is a lot that has to be done 
that, that, need, that you need to go through. And we have very little ways to kind of conceptualize like how you would do that in a way that's like clearly, be, you know, like we just, we just spent the last 40 minutes sort of talking about the ways that people think of doing this, right? Like become aware of like the history that you're a part of, become aware of the tradition that you come out of, um, sit with the discomfort. You know, like, and these are very like tried and true, you know, methods. And I think that they are effective. And I think the next piece is like, what do you do with your, like once you have kind of become aware of this identity that you carry, how do you move into a new identity? And that's sort of Janet Helms's work, right? Like she identified that you could move through a series of stages and get to an identity that was much more where you had grieved the losses and you had grieved the, you know, kind of, and, and kind of begun to feel the violence that you're a part of, and yet discovered a way to move forward that was both ethical, but also not self-loathing. And I think that right. part of what's also very complicated is that people who are, people who have a white racial identity often have a tremendous amount of self-loathing. Like that yes. is very baked into a white identity. And I think that's another reason that sort of the, the kind of shameful aspects of white history often drive people into a very defensive place because they come with a lot of self-loathing and shame to begin with, not necessarily about being white, but because they are raised by other white people. And this is part of our way of that is part of our identity that's partly racial and partly has to do with like our the culture that we come from the puritans christians you know i mean there's a whole bunch of of i mean that's a whole thing that still needs to be formulated is like why do we have so much shame and you know perpetrators are often perpetrated against in in kind of the present like and i think we have a very hard time thinking about what we do with perpetrators Mm. in general in our society and i think it's not unrelated and in much the same way and we're probably all perpetrators you know what i mean i can think of many instances where i have been the one who has perpetrated violence against other people whether i was a child whether i was um you know i, I was sort of like not aware of my light skin privilege and when i had people of color who are friends of mine talk about well of course you're black and i was like well i i'm not black, like I'm multi-ethnic mm -hmm. or like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Right. Like, like, you know, like Let's it's, not go too far. well, like I'm just saying like she had a very firm racial identity around being African-American because she came from the mm -hmm. South and that was her identity and that's what she knew. And that's mm -hmm. fine. I just didn't know the same thing she did about being African-American because I was raised in an all white home in an all white how, you know, place. Mm -hmm. And so my white, mm -hmm. my, my racial identity had been white even though I always mm -hmm. said I was multi-ethnic mm -hmm. and acknowledged that. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm getting at is, is to your point about Helms's work, moving through this to another place of a different kind of relationship, which is really the work of mindfulness. We can't change what happened, but we can change how we relate to what happened. Right. Having a different place there and then recognizing that I have been, and not perhaps the same way others may have been, just like people that come into my spaces to you know, seek some support, have different quote unquote, levels of trauma, but doesn't mean it's any more or less traumatic to them, right? Right. That, right. that I could be a perpetrator, if you will, to use that word very broadly, to different groups mm -hmm. or people or individuals at different points in my life, myself also, 
right? And so mm-hmm. that, and so that that is, and, but I'm very much the survivor also of a lot of deep perpetration on many levels. And so, mm-hmm. so in a way, this is just sort of the invitation to, to kind of always, like you say, societally, we don't really know how to deal with the perpetrator, perpetrator, right? Mm-hmm. Who's often mm-hmm. really wounded and hurting themselves. Right. Or we, yeah. And, and yes, finish your thought. Cause I, and well, I and just, and, and finding, you know, to the piece of our common humanity, where is that and how can that inform, not give a pass to not accept in terms of permissiveness, but inform and then act in a equanimous way toward greater understanding or healing. Yeah. Or whatever you want to say. Yeah. I mean, I, yes. I mean, I, I completely, I really like how you, you put that because I think that it is important to acknowledge that like, that there are there needs to be justice in order for there to be repair like there can't simply be i mean there's a 12 step saying the most the hardest resentments to let go of are the legitimate ones yeah. you know like there's a reason that we need to have some sort of justice in order to have healing and so how how that's going to work in terms of the way that we have this internal organization around race that exists in the majority of people, although not much of a majority anymore, but a large number of people in the country, right? A large enough number to cause problems because they're not resolved about this. That's a really important question. And again, I'm like sort of calling on the field of psychology and psychotherapy, you know, broadly. And I think that includes people who are working in spiritual traditions in this. And, but I mean, I feel like in spiritual traditions, this is a lot farther along, but I think. Well, but there's a lot of spiritual bypassing too, where they just skip ahead. Right. So the resentments and the, you know, whatever, or I should forgive or I should let go, but really I'm still stuck in my trauma over this. Right. I'm right. Right. And so I think like, I guess I'm, I'm calling on psych, you know, sort of psychotherapy broadly institutionally to begin using the tools and the power that we have to back up, you know, kind of the ideas that are very well established within psych, the psychotherapy and psychology community, which is like the racial injustice is wrong and it's bad and it hurts everyone. You know, like we do generally believe that there are very few people, I think, within institutional psychology and psychotherapy who would disagree with that. But the problem is we don't seem to be able to address it head on. So I think that's an important yeah. piece. And I think that there is a really important parallel with the, with the, the criminal justice system. And I think the, the, all the work that's being done around restorative justice is very translatable. You know, like what would a restorative psychology look like? Beautiful. You know, yeah. I think that because I, I, I do, I mean, I have, friends who are sociologists and their critique of my article when I showed it to them was like, okay, great. But like, what are you going to do? Right. And so that was very, that's very important because I think people who are therapists, we're really about the process, you know? And I think that's our strength is we're not going to bypass the process. We try not to bypass the process in order to heal. But at the same time, the degree of perpetration that's happening every day, all day with the police, with the jails, with the mental health, system, quote unquote, you know, all of the different ways that people's lives are literally being kind of like tossed aside. It does take more than just like, let's really focus on the process, you know, like we need to be to be active. And so 
Well, it's navel gazing at a certain point, even if you're, I mean, it's not, but it kind of can be that way as opposed it's to like, let's get to it. To like, yeah. I mean, I guess that's the balance, right? Is like, you don't want to be too much in the process of healing while people are still being hurt. And yet it's also, you don't want to bypass that because then it's impossible no, it's, to really do the healing or right. really do, do, you know, interrupt the perpetration. A hundred percent. And interestingly enough, um, two quick points, and then I know we need to close, um, is, is that one in my indigenous focusing oriented therapy training, which is the one that Shirley Turcotte founded that I was talking about earlier. Um, you know, the sessions are often a lot, um, shorter and more, you know, she describes it as like, Hey, people come in, they don't want to be coming back every week. Like we need to like get to the nut of this and then move mm -hmm. on. And that yeah. gets into the more like the meaning making the emotional component, the way we feel about the thing inside. And it uses focusing, which is Eugene Genlin's um, modality to kind of who's a philosopher. And, you know, basically mm -hmm. this is, it's clinical work, but doesn't have to be to deal with all of these um, issues. But it, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting because it's kind of a very succinct container um, as yeah. opposed to like maybe the psychoanalytic frame. And then the other thing that came to mind is in terms of like justice in terms of intent and impact, right? Like the way things actually land or move or change, like our sociologist friends were talking about, as opposed to this idea of the, or not as opposed to, but in addition to this idea of the emotional component that is needed to kind of, you have to kind mm -hmm. of connect to this somewhere in you. Mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. it's sort of like where remorse can be helpful Mm -hmm. <laughs> in yeah. terms of the grieving, like you were talking about earlier, with then mm -hmm. being able to move the needle because you're in the position of being the one with the privilege to mm -hmm. be able to actually start affecting things at a gatekeeper level that mm -hmm. sometimes people who are marginalized, who have been doing a lot of the work that can be supportive and collaborative at times cannot have access to mm -hmm. Get landing, the, yeah. landing the impact, but are holding a lot of the emotional space around it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's so true because I think that, you know, in a lot of ways in terms of how to kind of move this forward on an institutional level, you even have to have access to those rooms. You know, you have to be in the room. Otherwise, your voice, that voice, you know, of, of kind of, you know, kind of agitate, the voice of urgency, right? We're talking about urgency. Like if we're talking about psychoanalytic treatments, and I don't mean to pick on psychoanalysis because it's my true love, but, but, you know, like a psychoanalytic treatment is not urgent. In fact, right. it's the opposite of urgent, you know? And so, and yet there are situations that there's great urgency and people have talked about this, you know, within psychoanalysis, I definitely am not the first or only, but I think that in terms of the idea of what can therapy be useful for and how can it be useful for people who do not have institutional or class or racial privilege or ethnic privilege, like we do need to adapt. It does need to be adapted because, you know, people don't have nine years, you know, I mean, I guess you could argue that a lot of people don't have nine years. <laughs> right. Well, we don't know how long we have any of us really. And so yeah. uh, whether yeah. it's in therapy or beyond. And so really uh, it's our, it's our every breath is our day of reckoning or our moment of reckoning um, mm -hmm. with, um, with how aware, how, it, how curious, how curious do we really want to be about what's actually going on today and mm -hmm. how much is our default mode network just responding to whatever is around us mm -hmm. and how much are we, are we 
interrogating regularly, which isn't to say we have to interrogate whether it's good to look both sides when we're crossing the street, because that would be Mm -hmm. bad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But to just have that as a sort of um, frame and that urgency piece, it makes me think of something that one of my other teachers, um, you know, Jack Cornfield talks about, like how to be relaxed and alert. So you, mm-hmm. you want to be in this space of equanimity or calm or balance mm-hmm. in order to be able to be alert enough to then move into the place of the action. And I think that's where mindfulness stalls out sometimes because it becomes this like personal thing where we're supposed to be calm, which it never really was, but that's what it's been, you know, mm-hmm. marketed into and capitalized about like, oh, we're supposed to be like calm or whatever. You may get that from a practice mm-hmm. after a while and from that place of calm, be able to do the work that is yeah. needed, which is what, you know, I was saying Sean Jinwright was talking about, like, I can do this work because I can come from a place of okayness inside mm-hmm. me because mm-hmm. I've had the direct experience of what it's like to sit with myself for a long period of time and mm-hmm. not run away or push away. That's where mm-hmm. it can be helpful. Um, but then also the other piece that I thought of too is my other teacher, Terry Real, talks about patriarchy and he t- works with couples and he's basically like any guy or girl or man, or woman, or non-binary, or trans, or whomever who's in this position of more the grandiose position or the narcissistic mm-hmm. kind of one-up position, mm-hmm. which would be the white supremacist, you know, sort of mm-hmm. analog position yeah. or whatever in a relational dynamic that is a partnered, you know, romantic, whatever partnership. Any of those folks, when they move into intimacy, which requires the step of vulnerability, Mm-hmm. are happier <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's actually able to hold their full humanity and human experience mm-hmm. without cutting off parts of themselves, which frankly is sort of like, well, isn't white skin privilege or light skin privilege or uninherited privilege or whatever it is. Isn't that just a big dissociation anyway, if you want to go back to psychology? <laughs> yes, completely. I mean, I think that, and I think it's interesting that there really is consensus about that within the field. And research. If you really, and research, and like all the evidence is there, but there's the resistance, you know, like to kind of moving forward with it or, or well, I don't or know. Or mindfulness I mean, language, the clinging the to the moment. other. Yeah, yeah. But I get so excited since I wrote this article, it's just been really exciting and, and rejuvenating to connect with so many people who are already thinking about these things and how in some ways my article was just a big reiteration of a lot of things that people are already working on. And that's very rewarding. You know, I mean, early when I started writing this article, I just realized like nothing I'm thinking here is really very original, except that you know, putting the pen to paper. Like there are so many people who have been thinking along these lines, either hundreds of years before just observing the behavior of people who are very wedded to the idea of white supremacy and it's very kind of raw form as, you know, being pro-slavery or, or you know, being kind of involved in like a very overt oppression of one race over the other or one race by the other or just people, you know, working in therapy or working in other fields, kind of trying to understand how these systems continue to be replicated, like down through the ages. Yeah. Um, and I think Buddhism is a really, I mean, you know, I go back to Buddhism over and over again, but I think that this idea of like the separating out of the other and trying to kind of like keep out things that we don't want to kind of feel or things we want to escape from is so key. And it really does, 
it really does shed light on like some very basic human ways of surviving being alive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I love all of what we've shared today and, and all of your wisdom. And I love this article. And I obviously could talk to you forever because this was a very wide ranging <laughs> conversation. And perhaps we will revisit our conversation uh -huh. again. I would love that. The invitation is open. Um, perhaps we can let this one um, rest for a moment and see how people receive it. And I'm hoping they do so well. And I'm hoping they also read this article, Whiteness on the Couch, Long Reads, not Medium, I apologize, Long mm -hmm. Reads, Whiteness on the Couch by Dr. Natasha Stovall. And it really does sort of as you just said, um, bring all these different pieces that people have been working on together and really invite folks to, you know, think about, well, where could I fit in this or how, what could I do about this? Or what are my cross disciplinary pieces that I might be able to work with on this? And, and I love that. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation and I really do hope we can continue it off, off screen and on. Me too. All right. Uh, thank you so much. We're going to leave it here for now, everybody. Um, thank you for listening uh, to Rerooted on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. Take good care.